Father in heaven, we're here in your presence. It's been a privilege to worship, to sing, to hear inspiring testimonies. And now, Father, we're asking that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak to us through your word. Lord, we long to see Jesus this morning. We long to see you revealed in your word like we've never seen you before. Father, would you please show us fresh pictures of your grace and your beauty. Lord, may we fall more in love with you and may that inspire us to be earnest in our pursuit of a closer walk with you. Thank you, Father, for speaking through the power of your Holy Spirit. We open our hearts to you in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was kind of annoying to the employees. I mean, this guy had a real obsession. It was like he could think of nothing else. He worked for a large company, a company that took up 40 floors of the building. And yet, he was so determined that, you know how it is when you're at school and they have to do this fire drill or this tornado drill or this earthquake drill that you know it's never going to happen. Why do you have to go through these motions? Surely you know how to do this. But Rick was obsessed that his company know how to perform this evacuation properly. In fact, every three months, Rick, like clockwork, would go through the building with his bullhorn telling everybody to get out, to get to the stairs, to go down the stairways. Rick was obsessed with getting people out of the building on time. I imagine some of the people found this to be quite bothersome, to feel like I have busy work to do. I work for this big financial company, Morgan Stanley. I need to get these things done. And yet here he is constantly bugging us, telling us that we've got to practice how to get out of the building quickly. Sometimes when somebody is obsessed with something, it's hard to understand what it is that they see. What is it that, that, that drives them? Why are they so obsessed with this thing? I imagine that that's how Esau had to have felt. Esau, who, he was the firstborn child, but even from the time that they came out of the womb, Jacob seemed to be obsessed with what was rightfully Esau's. You know the story, or maybe you haven't read it before. If you haven't, I encourage you to read it in Genesis. When Jacob is born, they are twins, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob comes out grabbing on to the heel of Esau. And so his name is Jacob, supplanter or deceiver. He's in his name being given, it was prophesied that he would eventually be the one that would be served by his older brother. Esau couldn't stand this fact. Esau didn't really care that much about the birthright, but he couldn't stand how his brother acted. I mean, there was that day when Esau came in and he was starving. He came in from a long day of hunting. He'd been out in the fields for days. He'd been out hunting game and he Maybe he came in that day and he hadn't had much success. And as he came and there he smelled that amazing lentil stew that his brother Jacob had been fixing. And as he smelled it, he thought, I just have to have a little bit of that. 
It'll just get me through long enough to finally find some sustenance. But of course, Jacob was obsessed with the birthright, with the blessing. And so he demanded of his brother, well, yeah, you could have some, but you're going to have to give me the, the birthright. Esau said, Jacob, why can't you get past this? I don't understand what's going on. Okay, I'm going to die anyway. Please, give me some of this lentil stew. I have to have it. Jacob was obsessed with the blessing, with the birthright. He was determined to have this. He was determined to do whatever it took. Kind of like Lauren on his way to that campsite. He's determined, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that I get that camp spot for myself. I want to make sure that I have the most beautiful camp spot. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Jacob was obsessed with the blessing. So much so that when Isaac was finally about to die, Rachel hears that he's about to bless Esau and give that coveted blessing away. And when Jacob hears about it and Rachel proposes to him that he go and he try to deceive his, his father into thinking that he is actually the one, I don't think at first that when he went in, he actually had the intent of, of actually saying a lie. But as he went in, his father said, well, who are you? To which he answered, I'm Esau. A bold-faced lie that somehow he thought would get him this blessing that he craved. He thought that he had to do what it takes. He thought that if he could go through the right motions, if he could do the right things, that he could obtain the blessing for himself. And so you can only imagine, when that had so enraged Esau, he knew that Jacob just wanted the goods, that Jacob was just determined to have what was rightfully his. He knew that Jacob was just obsessed with some prophecy about their birth. And, and he knew that, that Jacob just needed to forget about it all. Years later, when he finally gets news that Jacob is coming back, and those messengers arrive and they, they say, Esau, your servant Jacob is, is coming back. He said, yeah, sure, my servant Jacob. Okay, call in the army. And he gets his 400 men together and he says, okay, we're, we're going to meet him. And he doesn't send any gracious message back to Jacob. But instead, Jacob hears from his servants that Esau is coming and he's coming with his 400 armed men. At this point, Jacob shouldn't have been very surprised because he had deceived Esau. He had brought himself to this place. But what ends up surprising in the story is how it ends. That morning, as Esau is finally there, getting that opportunity to meet Jacob, Jacob comes to him across the field and he's limping. He's dragging his, his leg behind him. And there's something different about Jacob. Esau hasn't seen him in years, but as he looks at Jacob's countenance, there's something different about him. There's a peace and a joy about him. Though he's limping as if he were the older brother by many years, he has a peace that passes all of Esau's understanding. And so it was to the surprise of the 400 armed men who were just waiting there to hopefully crush out all of Jacob's family, they were surprised as Esau 
grabbed his brother in a hug and an embrace, and they wept on each other's neck. But Esau must have been even more surprised. If you pick up the story in chapter 33, as they begin to talk back and forth, at first there's surprise about all of these possessions that Jacob has. And then we pick it up in verse 8, Genesis chapter 33 and verse 8. You can grab the pew Bible in front of you or we'll have the words up on the screen. Genesis chapter 33 and verse 8. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? You sent me all this stuff. And Jacob responds and said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I have seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Then verse 11, watch this. This is the guy who was obsessed with a blessing. This is the guy who would lie to his own dad. This is the guy who would take the stew and, and do whatever it took to bribe his brother into giving up his birthright. He says this, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. What happened to Jacob? Jacob was this man who was so obsessed with taking the blessing away from Esau and now all of a sudden when they meet, Jacob says, please take my blessing, take my goods, take it. Here you go, Esau. I want to bless you. Something had radically changed in Jacob's life. Something had transformed Jacob's character. Jacob had been desperate for the blessing. He'd been selfish. He'd been conniving. He'd been deceitful. He'd lived up to his name of Jacob being the supplanter, the deceiver. And yet at this point, Jacob is radically changed in that he's trying to give. What had changed for Jacob? Genesis chapter 32, we pick it up in the the previous chapter. When Jacob hears that Esau is coming, you know at first he sent out gifts in, in waves. He sent out various gifts of animals hoping to maybe appease Esau. He divides his his group into two different companies. And then he sends them across the Jabbok, this river that was a tributary of the Jordan River. They're nearing the Jordan River. And he sends his family across. And at that point, Jacob has done everything that he knows how to do. But rather than continuing to try to save himself in this situation, Jacob does something different this time. Something is different about Jacob. We pick up the story in Genesis chapter 32 and verse 13. Sorry, actually, we'll, we'll jump down to verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. Jacob knew the value of what Joshua saw. When Joshua, before that battle, spent hours on his faith in the camp at Gilgal like we talked about a couple weeks ago, Jacob understands that that is a source of power. Just like David, who constantly spent time meditating on the goodness of God, Jacob is now seeing that 
in his time of extremity, the answer is going to come from being alone with God. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Have you ever begun to pray about something that's going on in your life? And you're really confused why suddenly everything gets worse? I've begun to notice that in my life. That sometimes I will have an issue and I begin to earnestly pray about this thing that's going on in my life. Or even maybe it's something that I want to see changed about my own heart. And as I begin to plead with God, to ask God, Lord, would you make me more loving in this situation? That situation will get more annoying to me. (laughs) Have you ever experienced that before? Or I'll be praying about a situation and it just seems like every dynamic in that situation just continues to get worse. And I wonder, what is going on? Jacob had to have wondered that at this point. Here he is, bowing on his face in prayer, and all of a sudden he's getting attacked. God, I have enough problems already. My brother Esau is coming to kill me. All of these things are going wrong. Here I am following what you've told me to do. You've told me to come back here. You've told me that you would be with me. And now I'm here praying and asking for you to help. And all of a sudden, a man is trying to take me out. What is going on here? But Jacob begins to wrestle. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. They wrestled all night long. Verse 25, Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, Jacob was a strong man. If you remember, when he went to his uh, uncle Laban's uh, place and, and he met Rachel and he got so excited he wanted to impress Rachel. You remember that moment? He goes to the well that This huge stone was on that they said, no, we got to wait until everybody comes so that we can remove this stone. And Jacob single-handedly moves that stone, maybe to impress Rachel. I'm not sure. He really liked Rachel. He moves that huge stone all on his own. Jacob was a strong man. So Jacob wrestles all night long. And this man who's wrestling with him sees that he's not prevailing against him. And so he touches the socket of his hip. Now, I'm not going to go into some of the details that Pastor Renner went into a few a month or so ago. If you missed that message, I encourage you to pick it up on the website, uh, Jacob and the 144,000. A great message talking about what it was that, that, that might have been taking place at this point. He touched the socket of his hip. The socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said to him, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob is obsessed with a blessing. Jacob wants to have a blessing. And he's clinging now to this stranger, this guy who has been attacking him, this guy who's now hurt his hip significantly. He's hanging on to him and saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. That question would have been a huge question to Jacob. You remember that his dad had said, who are you? And he'd responded, Esau. He'd been trying to pretend that he was the one who was deserving of that birthright, who was the one that was deserving of that blessing. But here, he has to own up to who he really is. 
His name is Jacob, a deceiver, supplanter. And so when God says, Who, what is your name? It was an opportunity for Jacob to own up to who he really was, down at the core of his being. He answers, Jacob. And then verse 28, and he said to him, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Your name is now overcomer, the one who strives with God and overcomes. Your name is now the one of an overcomer. You have prevailed. You are Israel. What an amazing transformation. Verse 29, then Jacob said, saying, asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you have asked my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. What an incredible story. What is different about Jacob here? And what is it that Jacob is wrestling for here? I love what it describes in the book Thought from the Mount of Blessings, page 144. It says, Jacob, in that great crisis of his life, turned aside to pray. He waited alone on the other side of the Jabbok. He was filled with one overmastering purpose to seek for transformation of character. Jacob recognized that what was taking place was what he deserved to have happen to him. I don't know about you, but in my life, when I read the promises that God has given, there are amazing promises in the Bible. Promises for every part of your life. Everything that you might go through. And sometimes I read through those promises and I'm dealing with a difficult situation and I think to myself, well, that's great. Maybe if I'd been living right, God would answer. But I got myself into this mess. It was because of my mistakes that I'm here at this place, at this point. And so I don't know if God's really going to be able to show up and fix this because He doesn't promise to take care of all my mistakes, does He? I don't think that at this point it's going to work out. That must have been what was going through Jacob's mind. On the one hand, he had these promises that God would take care of him. But on the other hand, Esau had every right to be angry with him. He lied to Esau. And wasn't that breaking the commandments that God had given him to preserve his own safety? So what, didn't he deserve to be killed at this point by Esau? But as he wrestled there in prayer, he knew that he had asked for forgiveness of that sin. And he knew that he was wrestling for God to change who he was from being Jacob, the deceiver, to being an entirely new person. He was wrestling for a transformation of character. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 203, says this, It was by self-surrender, I believe that was the confessing who he really was, confessing that he was a deceiver, confessing complete dependence upon God. And confiding faith. That's faith that has confidence in the one that the faith is placed upon. Confiding faith that Jacob gained what he had failed to gain by conflict in his own strength. God thus taught his servant that divine power and grace alone could give him the blessing he craved. Thus it will be with those who live in the last days. You know, this specific 
time is referred to later on in Jeremiah chapter 30. If you go there with me, Jeremiah chapter 30. It specifically refers to the time of Jacob's trouble. We'll start towards the beginning of the chapter in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 5. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turn pale? This moment of travail of soul, this moment of agony for the people on earth. And then verse 7, Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Now this was specifically talking about the time when Babylon was going to come and destroy Jerusalem, but it's also talking about a future time when God's people will be facing the same extremity that Jacob was facing. And that is that there will be somebody coming after God's people. They'll be facing the time of Jacob's trouble. The promise is, but he shall be saved out of it. An incredible promise when you think about facing the time of trouble to know that God will be with you and that God will save you out of it. But what are the keys for us? For us who are on the cusp of dealing with these issues, what is the key for us to be overcomers, to be part of Israel, to be a part of the 144,000 who worship the Lamb and follow Him wherever He goes? Go to Hosea chapter 12, another place where it specifically talks about this occasion in the life of Jacob. Hosea chapter 12, and we'll pick up the story in verse 3. Earlier it's been talking about how Jacob was the one who, who had committed these, these, uh, these sins. And then verse 3 says, He took his brother by the heel in the womb. He's the supplanter, the one who is obsessed with the blessing. The one who, even from the womb, came out hanging on by the heel. And in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. There's something interesting there, isn't it? It says, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. Now in Hebrew, the word for angel is not just for a being with wings like we picture, but it, it means a messenger that has come. And here, it, it, it equates that angel or that messenger who came and wrestled with Jacob with who? It says, and in his strength he struggled with, who did he wrestle with? Jacob wrestled with God. And yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm simply hanging on to you. I believe that you have a blessing for me. Now, with all the sins that Jacob had committed, all the mistakes that he had made. Here he is, a person who had deceived his father. Here he is, a person who had tricked his brother. Here he is, a person who's now married four different wives. He knew that he had not been living in the way that God had called him to live. What gave him the right to cling to God at this point in this wrestling when he finally recognized that it was God? What gave him the confidence to cling to God, believing that he would bless him? I want to have that confidence, don't you? That when I go to God in prayer, that He is a God who wants to bless me. 
A God that wants to bring favor into my life. A God who wants to bring transformation of character in my life. I want to believe like Jacob and cling to God like Jacob did and say, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Please, won't you bless me? So what is it here? What is it for Jacob that made all the difference? Keep reading in verse 4 of Hosea chapter 12. He wept and sought favor from him. It continues and says, He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. Why does it suddenly refer to Bethel, which means house of God in Hebrew? Where was the place that we just read that Jacob and the angel wrestled, that Jacob and God wrestled? What did he name it afterwards? He named it Peniel because I have seen the face of God. I've wrestled with God. and I believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ that he was wrestling with Jesus himself there, clinging to Jesus himself. It says, that place he ended up naming Peniel because he'd been face to face with God. So where does the name Bethel come from? What does this have to do with the story of Jacob? Go back to Genesis with me. We're going to find the key that made this confiding faith stir inside of Jacob that gave him the confidence to go to God and to believe that he was a savior, to cling to God in the midst of this time of wrestling. Genesis, we're going to go back a few chapters earlier. In Genesis chapter 28, Genesis chapter 28, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. This is when Esau is really angry about to send him. uh, Esau is saying, I'm going to kill you as soon as, as Isaac is dead. And Isaac says to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padananra, Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you. And make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples, and give you the blessing of Abraham. Just pause for a minute. What was the blessing of Abraham? Back in Genesis 12, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. It said, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And how was that going to take place? It was going to take place through their lineage, through their children and their children's children, until finally there would come a seed of the lineage of Abraham, whose name would be Jesus, and he would save his people from their sins. The blessing that would come was Jesus. Does that make sense? The blessing of Abraham that was promised is the blessing of Jesus. And so here, Isaac is blessing Jacob, saying to him, and give you the blessing of Abraham, give you that assurance that Jesus is going to come through your lineage. Give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. Jump down to verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. You can imagine at this point the agony in Jacob's heart. Here he is leaving his family behind. He's living, leaving his mother behind that he loves so dearly, and he's headed off to a place that he's never been before. At this point, he's homeless. At this point, he doesn't have any possessions with him. Everything that he tried to get by 
Securing the, the blessing, the birthright, by deception seems to have been lost. Verse 11, So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. Now, we'll learn in just a few minutes that the city that is later named here is going to be called Bethel, the house of God. This is that occurrence in the life of Jacob that later is referred to by Hosea saying, he heard and he saw God at Bethel. It was because of that that he wept and sought the favor of God because he had seen God at Bethel. That was what gave him the confidence to cling to God in that moment of wrestling, to cling to God for the blessing. Bethel was about 40 miles, they estimate, from Beersheba. You imagine how exhausted Jacob was. He'd been traveling all on his own. He's running from Jacob. He's probably trying to hide on the way so that hopefully, he's running from Esau, hopefully that Esau won't be able to track him down. He's a nomad. He's not wanting to to go to any villages, not wanting to, to secure lodging in a normal place because he's a fugitive. He's a homeless, wandering fugitive who's just traveled 40 miles. I don't know about you, but I've never hiked 40 miles in one day. (laughs) That's a long distance to travel. You have to imagine how exhausted Jacob is at this point. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Doesn't he sound miserable? He's sleeping on a rock, or or at least a rock for a pillow. He's out in the cold. He's exposed. Here, Jacob is as vulnerable as he's ever been in his life. Up to this point, he was shielded by his mother, Rachel. and He had his family around him. He was the one who never wandered out. He was the one who stayed home and shepherded the sheep and watched out for the domestic things while his brother Esau went off on adventures. But here he is, and as he's gone out on this 40-mile journey, he's left exposed and helpless, feeling like he's totally lost. He deserves to be in the place where he is. He deserves to be put to death because he's the one who lied to Esau. And so at this point, he deserves to be killed by Esau. And as he lies there, helpless and all alone, verse 12, Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth. Don't miss this. God shows up when we recognize our helplessness. God shows up when we have nowhere to turn. God shows up when we are in our extremity and we have nowhere to turn. That is when God shows up for you and me. Because it's then that we finally surrender. It's then that we don't try to give all the answers ourselves and try to work out our salvation on our own. It's then that we realize that we're not going to be able to get the best campsite ourselves. And we're finally relying upon the king of the universe to come through for us. He sees a ladder set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Here, Jacob feels all alone and God's telling him, you're not alone. There's this ladder and it connects with heaven and here come these angels. But it just keeps getting better. Verse 23, and behold the Lord. And in Hebrew, it's Yahweh, the personal name of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. Here, Yahweh is standing above this ladder. And Jacob looks up 
And he sees that there is hope for him to have a connection with God. This morning, you may be sitting here feeling like you have no right to be connected to God. Feeling like it's great that we talk about a closer walk with God. It sounds good, but do you know the sin in my life? Do you know the stuff that's gone on in my life? I am not at the place of being able to have a closer walk with God. That's how Jacob's feeling right here. Jacob doesn't feel like he has any right to come to God, and yet God shows up and reveals to him a solution. A bright, shining ladder that connects to heaven, and at the top stands Yahweh himself. And then Yahweh speaks. Chapter th- verse 13 continues, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants this homeless wanderer, I'm going to give you the promise. I'm going to give you the birthright. That which you don't deserve is going to be yours. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus is going to come and he's going to save you and it's going to be through your kids. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is that connection that I've been longing for. This is that promise. This is that blessing that I've been looking for all this time. And it is right here in this place. Then Jacob arose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put at his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And all of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. God had presented a solution to a lonely, wandering sinner who was disconnected from heaven. When I was about 13 years old, I began to have a dream of climbing Mount Everest. I dreamed that one day I would get to stand on the highest place in all the world. At some 29,000 feet, I've since learned that it costs a significant amount of money and it takes a significant amount of time to climb Mount Everest. And not only that, but a lot of people die doing it. So I haven't actually yet accomplished that goal in my life. But there's something very interesting that happens. And it's become very common for people to climb Mount Everest. And so there are people there in Nepal called Sherpas who are guides specifically there to help people climb Mount Everest. And as they arrange for people to climb Mount Everest, the work starts far before people even begin on their trek to climb Mount Everest. In fact, there's a specific group called the doctors, who are Sherpas, who are specially uh, designed, or not designed, but specially given the task of going out ahead of climbing season and going to the Kumbu Ice Falls. The Kumbu Ice Falls is this glacier 
this area that is difficult for climbers to cross. It has many large crevasses. And what these Sherpas do, these local people who many of them have never even summited Mount Everest themselves, they will take these ladders and they will carry these ladders and they'll climb up into this ice field and they'll go through and they carefully find each of the crevasses and they find the, the best path across this glacier. And as they find a big crevasse that they know the climbers aren't going to be able to just jump across, they'll take a ladder off of one of their backs. And sometimes they'll take two ladders. In fact, I have a, a picture here of, of somebody crossing one where you see there's about two to three ladders that are all tied together by this, this thin rope. And they'll put it across, you can go to the next slide, they'll put it across this crevasse so that people can walk across and get to the other side. You go to the next slide. There's, there'll be a deep crevasse there and they'll be crossing it and, and there's pictures of them actually looking down and you can see below them this huge crevasse below them when the climbers actually finally get to go across it. But they will work through this whole Kumu Falls, bringing all of these ladders, preparing the way so that people are able to cross these crevasses that otherwise could lead to death for many climbers. This is one of the most dangerous parts of climbing Mount Everest. These Sherpas prepare the way. They go ahead. They make sure that the way is prepared. God was saying to Jacob, I have a way prepared for you. Here's this ladder, and the angels are ascending and descending on it, coming to you, providing protection for you. And you find angels showing up in the story again and again, right when he's going to meet Esau. These these two camps of angels show up, one camp in front and one camp behind Jacob, and they are there to remind Jacob of Bethel, to remind Jacob that there is a ladder connecting him to heaven, that there is protection, that there is divine care in his life, that God is with him. So, in John chapter 2, when Jesus is talking to Philip and Nathaniel, actually it's at the end of John chapter 1, Something very fascinating is said by Jesus. Who is, or what is this ladder? What is this ladder all about? If you look up in your English Bible and you look up the words ascending and descending in the entire Bible, in one verse it's only used in these two different places. In the Old Testament and here in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we find Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's confused about who Jesus is. Nathaniel has seen John the Baptist preaching, and he'd seen John the Baptist point out this lowly carpenter and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And seeing that, he's confused and wanting to know for sure if John the Baptist's preaching is accurate. And so he goes to pray and to say, Is this the truth? And he's there under a fig tree, praying and asking that God would reveal to him who the Messiah is. And as he's there praying under the fig tree, Philip shows up and finds him there under the fig tree and and tells him that that Jesus of Nazareth is is the one that they've been looking for. And as Nathanael comes to Jesus, Jesus says to him, Behold an Israelite in whom is no guile. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Jesus sees you when you're in that moment of confusion and you're on your knees asking for direction. Jesus sees you when you come to Him in prayer. He knows what you're asking. Jesus sees you when you're looking for a campsite. Jesus sees you when your cat is sick and needs healing. Jesus sees you when you're praying that people would come to know Him in the Spanish Prophecy Seminar. Jesus sees you when you pray. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, because, or verse 49, sorry, Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He believes because of what Jesus says. Just a simple statement. So verse 40, uh, we continue verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. We looked at this a few study guides back. That This is the promise of God for our lives and our walk with Him. A consistently greater experience with more joy, more of His presence, more of His power in our lives. This is the promise that Jesus gives to you and I. But Jesus goes on to describe what this is going to look like for Nathaniel. In verse 51, don't miss this, he says, And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon who? The Son of Man. Jesus takes that that vision that Jacob had saw of that ladder that ascended into heaven and he says, It's not just a ladder. That is me. Those angels descending and and ascending, they were ascending on the Son of Man Himself. It's me who has come and who has arranged for the chasm to be bridged. You see, Jesus came and He saw that there was this huge gulf between Jacob and his God. And He said, I know that I'm going to lay down my life. And I'm going to bridge that chasm so that He can walk across it. I'm going to go ahead of Him And I'm going to lay down my own life so that he can be reconnected to God. And Jesus has gone ahead of you and I. And he is the ladder. The one that you and I have to cling to at every moment. The one that you and I have to constantly be looking to. In Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, it says this, Our Savior is the ladder which Jacob saw whose base rested on the earth, whose topmost rounds reached the highest heavens. This shows the appointed method of salvation. If any of us are finally saved, how many of you want to be saved? How many of you would like to live with Jesus forever? If any of us are finally saved, it will be by clinging to Jesus as to the rounds of a ladder. To the believer, Christ is made wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. It all comes down to Jesus and clinging to Jesus. And Jesus tells Nathaniel, you're going to see heaven open. You're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And then later on, he's going to tell Philip, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It's all about finding salvation through me. And when the Pharisees are there, and they're questioning who Jesus is. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus says to them, you search the Scriptures. We've been talking about the value of looking at Scripture and the value of what that can do in our hearts. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures, that's a, a good thing. But these are they which testify of Me. Don't miss Me in the process. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. Jesus says, in verse 40 though, 
but you would not come to me that you might have life. You're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Friends, in our seeking a closer walk, in our seeking to dive into the Bible, to enhance our experience in prayer, remember that every part of Scripture is to point us to Christ. Every part of the Bible is to remind us of Jesus. Every moment in prayer is only made possible through Jesus because He is the way. He is the ladder. He is our connection. And this picture is what gave Jacob hope. Jacob saw this and realized that though he was a deceiver, that he had access to the God of the universe. And you and I can have access to the King of Kings if we only cling to that ladder. At the last church that I pastored in Modesto, it had a really high uh, front portion above the platform where once a year they would go around Christmas time and they would put these large wreaths up in the top there. And I remember the first time that I got there, we had a painter who came and he had these really long ladders, longer than I'd ever seen, would probably stretch from one side to the other side of this building. And he came with these huge ladders, and I'm thinking, what are they going to do? I didn't know what this whole process looked like. They did it apparently year after year. And they took these ladders, and they began to extend them way up into the front of the church. I thought, oh, wow, somebody's going to go up that ladder. And then they bring over these huge wreaths that were quite heavy. They were probably about five feet in circumference. They, they have these huge wreaths. I'm thinking, okay, so somebody's going to carry that up that long ladder, I mean, at the time, I hadn't seen what happened to Malin with a ladder, but I now recognize more and more that ladders can be a dangerous thing. Be careful when you get on a ladder. And as we're looking at this ladder, all of a sudden, this little guy in his 70s, not that I have anything against anybody in their 70s, but this guy who the reef was probably as big as he was, grabs this wreath and begins to head over towards the ladder. And I said, wait a second, I work here. I have coverage. I don't know for sure about you, but I'm going to climb that ladder. And so I grabbed the wreath and I began to climb up this ladder and climbed higher and higher and higher until they said, no, keep going higher. Keep going higher. You need to go all the way to the top there. And I'm getting up there. And let me tell you, when you realize that you are clinging between heaven and earth, you hang on to the ladder. You're not about to let the ladder go. I hung on to that ladder, and just so long as the ladder didn't fall, I didn't fall, and the ladder never fell, so I'm here talking to you today. If any of us ever hope to be saved, it will only be by clinging to the ladder, clinging to Jesus. It's not by any way that you can figure out to work towards your own salvation. It is only by clinging to Jesus and the salvation that He has already worked out for you. Yes, He wants to lead you to follow His commandments, but it first comes by clinging to Him and then allowing Him to work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. Friends, salvation comes in no other name than Jesus Christ. There is no other righteousness that has any value in heaven except for the righteousness of Jesus. And Jesus longs for you and I in these last days to be clinging to our great high priest who's interceding for us in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, longing to blot out our sins. And He longs for us to cling to Him like Jacob did. And in this time, the time of trouble that is coming on this planet, or just the time of trouble that you're going through today, the time of trouble that you're facing with your family, that you're facing with your community, the time of trouble that you're facing at your job, 
He wants you to cling to Him and to rely on Him as your only Savior. You see, Rick, time after time, had these drills in which he would take them straight to the emergency staircase of the World Trade Center. And he would have these 2,700 employees evacuate as quickly as they could out of those upper floors of the World Trade Center building because he had been there before when a bomb had gone off. There had been a car bombing. He'd survived it. And he was obsessed with making sure that the employees of Morgan Stanley would not be a part of those who died the next time a disaster happened. So that morning, September 11, as he was there, not supposed to be there. He was supposed to be on his way to Europe for his stepdaughter's wedding. But somehow he was there in the building and suddenly there came the report of a plane crashing into tower number one. And as he heard this report, immediately he sprung into action. And he began to tell everyone, you've got to get to the staircase. You've got to get to the staircase. You need to get out of the building. Do you know? that 2,700 employees made it out of that building safe and sound. They said that as they were going out and they were going down the staircase, that he was there on the megaphone singing patriotic songs. He was there encouraging them. He was there pushing them to get to the staircase. But Rick, as that building, the second plane impacted, as the buildings began to come down, Rick refused to go out. He went on to find other companies, to other people to lead them to the staircase, to point them to the only way of salvation in that building. And Rick died in the process. Friends, the way of salvation is not cheap. Jesus provided the way for you. He paid for it at an infinite cost. Don't tread lightly on the ladder. Cling to the ladder Focus on the ladder. Look for Jesus everywhere you turn. Look for Jesus in every page of Scripture because every page points to Jesus. And if what you're studying doesn't point you to Jesus, friends, pray for the Holy Spirit to point you to something different because you are mistaken because it all points us to Jesus and a closer walk with Jesus. If the things that you're holding to, the things that you think are important in your life don't point you to Jesus, reevaluate them. Re Pray about them and ask that Jesus would reveal to them, you, them to you in the context of Jesus as the only way of salvation. I want to challenge us. Last week we talked about the acronym IOUS. Today I want to, to challenge us this week to pray the prayer of the IOU, IOUs again, but this time to make them more specific. Not just talking about to pray uh, that He would incline our heart to His testimonies. That He would open our eyes to the wonders of His law. That, that He would unite our heart to fear Him. That He would satisfy us early with His mercy. But I'm going to put up a slide here at the end. It says, incline my heart to Jesus. That's what the testimonies are all about. So, pray this prayer from Psalm 119.36, but Pray it specifically that He would incline your heart to Jesus. To that ladder that alone can bring you salvation. Incline your heart in such a way that you too will be led to cling to Jesus in your time of trouble and to not let Him go until He blesses you. Pray the prayer 
Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things of Jesus. Because that's what the law is all about. That's who the law pointed to. It's all about Jesus. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things of Jesus. Unite my heart to Jesus. Satisfy us early with Jesus. As you open your Bible each morning, it's not just to go through the motions and to read a certain number of chapters. It's not just to go through a certain method in order to seek God, but it is to pursue a relationship with Jesus. And He is longing. Longing to draw you closer and closer, just like Jacob, laying there in that hard, cold earth with a stone for a pillow, miserable as all get out, Jesus wants to show up to you and show you that He has provided a staircase, a ladder to heaven. Do you want to commit in your walk to focus on Jesus? To to weed out anything in your relationship with God? Even in, in coming to church to determine that you come to church not because of people. That you come to, to Sabbath school not to learn things that people have to say, but to learn of Jesus. Friends, in the end, nobody will be saved except those who have clung to Jesus. I want to be among those who are clinging to Jesus, unwilling to let Him go unless He blesses me. If that's your desire, I just want to invite you, if you're able, to kneel with me in prayer. Father, thank You for revealing to us the way, the truth, and the life. Who is Jesus? There is no other way of salvation. And so we are here thanking You that You have already made the way. But God, sometimes we get so distracted in the process of seeking You. We're just like the Old Testament followers who got distracted by sacrifices when it was all pointing to Jesus. Lord, we don't want to be distracted by the stuff of our religion. Lord, may we recognize that all of these things are here in place to give us a closer walk with Jesus, a deeper love for Jesus. And so God, we pray this morning, and we want to pray every morning this week, would you please incline our hearts to Jesus? Would you open our eyes to see the wonders of Jesus? Would you unite our hearts to Jesus? Would you satisfy our hearts with Jesus? We want for Jesus to be everything to us. Lord, I pray that we would see the wonders, the beauty of Jesus in such a way that we seek you with all of our hearts, knowing that you will be found by us. We pray this because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.